Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Mutang Dhammang Sanghang Namasang Um, yeah, thank you for your questions. I start somewhat with this one. Um, the question, is it possible to follow Buddhist teachings, trying to live as simple a life as possible, while still unable to resist the pull of materialism and consumerism? Well, the answer could be a straight no. It would be a simple answer. But maybe just uh, to reflect a bit more on that. I, I thought there's one thing I was wanting to talk about maybe um, this evening anyway is um, Vedana. Um, that's uh, mindfulness of uh, Vedana. That's the second foundation of mindfulness. No, when I talked on the first night, I talked about the four foundations of mindfulness. And we started off with mean, the basic one. That's for meditation, mindfulness of the body, which in some form or another I really do hope that you have practiced over the last few days. Um, having done that, then the, the, the second foundation uh, is uh, called, um, um, I guess the part of it is Vedana Nusati. You mean? So that's a, it's mindfulness of Vedana, um, being aware of that, of, of that in our life. So what is that? Um, I think it's very helpful. Small and fairly simple and principal kind of reflection. Uh, so to explain, first of all, Vedana is, um, is a technical term in Pali Buddhism. It's usually in English translated as feeling, but um, there isn't really, I think, an adequate uh, translation for it in European languages um, because, I mean, of, like feeling uh, uh, in English and you know, similar words that are used in other European languages, it's a fairly vague word. It can mean all kinds of things, you know. It's something, it's something to do with how we feel, you know, or emotional thing, emotional quality. In uh, Theravada Buddhism and Pali Buddhism, it's, it's as I said, it's a technical term. It's basically just a reference about uh, a mental judgment that we make more or less immediately really, about our experience, any kind of experience. And it is attributed to three values, to keep it simple. No? As we judge, judge our experience as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Mm. Um, it refers basically to that aspect in uh, our experience. That, you know, whatever we experience no? through all the senses in Buddhism, we use um, six senses, no? so the five physical senses and the mind, so that it sums it up, anything that we experience, you know, sight, sound, smell, taste, uh, ideas, um, anything, things that we you know, sense. And, well, we, we always have experiences in either of those three ways, isn't it? Either we find it pleasant or unpleasant or kind of neutral, which basically usually means so we don't even make a judgment, we probably don't even pay uh, real attention, you know, because what the mind usually is really focusing on or, or reacts towards is, of course, pleasant and neutral. This, I think, it's quite important in our contemplation, and this relates directly to these this questions, I think, uh, that, that I read out. Because that is really the, a very basic conditioner, um, you know, 
for, for our mind, how mind actually operates. You know, the most basic um, code of, of behavior of mind. Because usually it translates instinctively and originally very directly into pleasant, want, more, have. And unpleasant, each, get away from, help, protect. <laughs> and uh, so that's very strongly wired into the system, isn't it? Um, and uh, that's just very important to recognize. Again, to say that that is, that is there's nothing wrong in that, no? per se. That's natural. That's actually biological conditioning. Now, I would like to uh, use this. Um, this, this example of this, this illustrate that is actually something that we seemingly we actually share with all sentient beings. No? So the example I would like to use is, is the amoeba. No? If, you, if you see an amoeba in, a, in, a, in its watery solution under the microscope, you know it's kind of um, frolicking around in there, you know, in this water. And then you put a little bit of salt into the solution, the amoeba immediately retracts away from the salt. No? So whatever, I don't know what the conscious experience of an amoeba is like, but you know, if you presume there's some consciousness there, there's some sentience there, which operates exactly in that, in that way. The amoeba senses, it, the way it senses the fact that, that salt is not good for it, it's, it's through some form of unpleasant. You know? So you know, as soon as there's sentience, they're operating anyway. Not all animals do that. You know? Just get away from it. If you put sugar into the solution, the amoeba is going to go towards it. You know? Pleasant. Have, no? and uh, the funny or sometimes not so funny thing is, of course, that our mind operates in exactly the same way. No? It's maybe it's it's in the end it's well it's vastly more sophisticated than what an amoeba can do, and let's presume uh, think about <laughs> it doesn't have the you know the mechanics for it, but the what's actually feeling it's a, it's basically a sophisticated elaboration on that basic theme. Now, all the complexity of our mind and of our emotional work is, is really based on that, uh, on that very basic you know, binary principle. Or, you know, so it's got three options, isn't it? Pleasant, have, unpleasant, get away, or you know, can't be bothered, you know, don't even notice, you know, neutral. So that's why classic in Theravada Buddhism is also, I mean, there's an obvious correlation. You know, those three basic forces of the mind uh, are correlated through the, to, to the three basic, if you like, uh, defilements that create our self trouble, trouble that are responsible for uh, our suffering, uh, which is, of course, uh, pleasure, want, greed. You know? And this pleasure, I don't want, get away from, aversion you know? or hatred in an extreme form. And uh, neutral, don't mind, ignorance. That means we, we don't actually notice, we don't even pay attention. And so that is something, as, as a practitioner, if you want to actually start to realize about suffering and how suffering kind of comes into our life, now we are responsible for it, something very important to pay attention to. So it's important to see those forces operating in our mind. Um, and if we can, uh, it's something that can to lead to very, um, very uh, important, crucial insights and can, um, can save us a lot of trouble. Now, sometimes it's just a bit like uh, catching a fire when it's still small. Mm -hmm. So again, to say the important, that's, that's a general 
I think, uh, applies importance and when we bring, you know, the practice of mindfulness. It's not to take necessarily the stance, it's not to say that these things operating ourselves, in ourselves are wrong. Mm. They, they do, of course, serve, you know, a basic important function even, not to a certain extent they're actually good. I mean, they are there for a reason, you know, like say, you know, there's a reason, of course, why you know, the amoeba gets a signal. This unpleasant, or in a more extreme form, pain, is, of course, a warning sign. It basically means this is not good for you. Stay away from it. And it does, of course, serve its purpose. And uh, the, the thing, of course, that hopefully we do notice once we grow up and become a bit more sophisticated, that that basic kind of system that nature has given us has its limitations. It's not always 100% true. Mm-hmm. I mean, if so kind of, you know, little babies or newborn for, I can't say for what I remember, I remember very little, but, you know, for what I see and observe, you know, usually that operates still that way, you know, in a quite straightforward manner, you know. If the little baby feels, sees something that it likes, it's all giggle, and happiness, you know, and perhaps want, you know, gimme, 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 you know, in whatever way it can indicate that. And it's happy if it gets what it wants and, and what is pleasant. If it's unpleasant, immediately it starts to get, you know, agitated and might start to start to cry. Recently we had this little boy here, isn't it? How old was it? Eight months or so? We did a baby blessing, you know, and, and we, so before baby blessing, the baby comes in, we do some chanting and not every baby likes our chanting <laughs> for, <laughs> for reasons I can understand. But uh, our Parita chanting can actually be quite nice. I quite like it. And most babies like it too. This baby did like our chanting. So the daddy was holding the baby there quite close to us. We were chanting away. And, and you know, I, I was concentrating on the chanting and keeping my eyes closed. But I could hear the baby kind of, kind of giggling and, and, and obviously enjoying you know, itself. Of looking around, I'm quite happy. But then at the end of the chant, with the last chant, part of the game is um, I have the kind of whisk, or where is this thing among the whisk, and then we sprinkle some water, you know, that brings the blessing on him. So I was sprinkling the water. And you could see, I had my eyes open, and the baby, the immediate, was kind of all happy, and then as soon as the water came, it looked kind of. <laughs> so something was wrong, you know. It was definitely unpleasant, you know. And you could see it was kind of wandering, you know. Probably if it would have been a little bit smaller, it would have probably started screaming immediately, you know. But it was just confused, you know, something wasn't right. So then next thing, it would just kind of look around, you know, at daddy and mom and all the other relatives or people who were there, you know, how are they responding, you know? Is this all right? Am I, you know, am I supposed to cry now? Or <laughs> and so it, it luckily it didn't start screaming and stayed in this kind of state of perplexity. But it kept looking at me rather kind of disapproving, you know. <laughs> didn't like it. So you see, I mean, you could even see maybe, you know, I, I, my interpretation was already a little kind of learning process going on. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't kind of hesitating about what to make out of this now, you know. Of course, as we grow up, you know, then sometimes we learn, hopefully, um, to a certain extent, that pleasure doesn't always mean it's good for us. It's just simply not true. Um, and of course, unpleasant doesn't also always mean that necessarily it's bad for us. Or even if it does, our, our reaction can be a little bit more sophisticated than throwing a tantrum. 
No? <laughs> Maybe it's actually quite all right to just put, put up with it. You know? Or at least we can come, you know, wait a bit and reflect upon it and come with a constructive, more constructive kind of um, response. Um, for a baby, of course, necessarily, also it's, it's still more um, more simple because it doesn't have many means by itself to actually really respond out of its own resources constructively to its environment. It's very much dependent on the help of caregivers, no? the, the, the parents, in the usual case, no? whoever is looking after the baby. So it has to appeal and hopefully very strongly to their help. So no, it's very obvious and the, the very simple reaction by the baby. No, it, um, um, attract attention, no? the right kind of attention. No? Sometimes uh, human, human beings are born without the capacity to actually feel pleasure and pain. And as far as I know, I mean, that's usually very tragic because um, human beings, you know, without that ability, they usually don't survive for very long. So you can see this is really, a, a survive, it's, you know, it's important for our very survival. No? And, of course, um, a lot of the... Um, you know, the materialist uh, consumer society, you know, or those who make, uh, live on you know, making profit from uh, our, our consumerist kind of attitudes and behaviors, of course, they, they strive on the fact that we, we learn perhaps a little bit, but not, often not very much. Um, just look at all the um, sugar that is kind of um, sold in the, in the food industry. Uh, with a little bit of reflection, I mean, most people, or most people in this room, know that sugar, and you know, it's not really good for us. You know, industrialized sugar to take it in. You know, the body is quite capable out of uh, organic kind of food to produce its own sugar. You know, if it gets overload of you know artificial sugars with with our um, with our nourishment, then you know the the, the body's metabolism system is actually gets confused and, and brought out of order. No? Um, diseases like diabetes or, or you know, you know, it's overweight, I think it's actually uh, caused by you know, intake of uh, too much sugar. Even worse, I mean, it's kind of ironic these days you get these drinks or things that kind of even sold as, you know, I don't know, but like a Coca-Cola light or we get this Tesco's cranberry light, you know, healthy you know, in big letters on it. And they think, all right, well, this is light and healthy. If you don't look at what's on the back, it says, yeah, it doesn't have any sugars. It puts on, you know, no sugars, you know. And then you see, well, instead of sugar, it's got aspartame in it, you know. <laughs> you know it's artificial, actually, by what I hear, um, by, by uh, various kind of scientists who have investigated the things, which are actually straight away poisonous kind of stuff that's put into it. You know? But it's sold as health food, you know. And, of course, people keep buying those things because it, it tastes good. You know? Or, you know, if you've got the, the sweet tooth, at least, you know, once you, maybe once you just get, you know, past the um, addiction to really sweet <clears throat> food stuff, you might even kind of lose the taste for it, you know. But if you if it, it's just something, you know, it triggers in oneself and really kind of craves for it. Even if, you know, from a rational point of view, uh, we, we know it's not really good for us. And, of course, even more so, I mean, children, or small, small children, of course, they don't know, and they want it, and then, of course, they pester their parents until finally they give in and give them the sweets. So, and a lot of money is made with that. So what I meant to talk about is basically in our meditation, then, 
mindfulness practice, like uh, many things, well, it's about bringing mindfulness into the actuality of our experience. You know, and then if, if, you have, if, you're, if you're mindful, if you're aware of what is actually happening, of course, not, you know, what's coming in through the external senses and what's happening in our mind, you know, what our mind is doing, you know, it generates on its own, and our response reacts to the you know, apparently kind of external kind of input. <clears throat> then we are able to actually see and examine what's going on. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. You know? So that we can see where and how in there are we actually creating our own suffering. And then to see, you know, there's this, this aspect of pleasure and displeasure and like and dislike. You know, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a very important thing to recognize. So, not to not to judge it. Uh-huh. Well, we don't, you know. In, in most cases, I guess we don't even have to. Kind of, we don't have to take a stand against it or some, you know, have some theory about it or, or fight against it. But just to know that this is happening. Uh-huh. If I know that this is happening, then I can make uh, informed choices, uh-huh. and I can see. As somebody somebody told me at some point, you know, seeing, you know, grown up, you know, big kind of man. At a at a railway station, he put his money into the into the Coca Cola machine, but no Coca Cola came out. No, so he pushed the button and pushed it again, and then you know he threw a tantrum, started to scream at this machine and kick it and hammer it, you know, with both fists, <laughs> not realizing or whatever, or not caring that I mean, this is pretty pathetic kind of way, isn't it, for a kind of fifty year old. Um, to respond to that kind of situation. You could have just, you know, if you're a meditator and you've got some awareness and you've practiced a bit with your own emotional reactions, you might might have just seen, oh, this is rather disappointing, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And disappointment is always going to feel disappointing. No, that is just the way it is. So, of course, this is unpleasant. So there's no need, you know, just because you're a spiritual person to somehow turn it around and have to get some pleasure out of being disappointed. No, that's not the point. And the point is that you feel, oh, this is unpleasant. Well, so what? No. Okay, what are you going to do about it? You know, maybe you don't do anything about it. Maybe you just say, well, well, after all, you know, Coca-Cola is not such a healthy drink anyway. I'll just go into the shop and buy something more healthy, you know. Or just you know, forget about that dollar. Or maybe I should tell somebody, somebody about it, you know, or put a note on so that at least, you know, that would be a kind thing to do, isn't it? So that then maybe the next person doesn't have to have the same frustrating experience, you know. But throwing a tantrum and kicking the machine, <laughs> that's not going to do anything, isn't it? Just, and most likely, um, counter to, the, to perhaps a common myth that, you know, you get this thing out and then you feel better. Well, maybe it works for you, but probably it might just, you know, going to ruin the rest of your day, you know. So similar, of course, is all kinds of things. Catching the fire, now I'm saying when it's still small, that is often, at least that's a theory, maybe that's not always the case, but you know, that's if, you, if you can notice, you know, just unpleasant when it's actually happening, be aware of it, you know, then you can catch and can notice how it actually starts or will have the tendency. Actually, if you don't notice it, that's, that's perhaps the most, the most dangerous because if you don't notice it, it's starting to color actually your mood. You start to actually see things through the lens. You know, that gets tainted you know, by a little bit of, it's like a little bit of 
yellow, you know, whatever your disfavorite color is, it's dropped into your lens, you know, you're starting to see things a bit yellowish, you know. And the more unpleasant kind of things go undetected, you, know, you might just be busy kind of distracting yourself, looking, de- denying it, ignoring it, looking at something else. But it, meanwhile, it's going past your defenses, you know, underneath the, the threshold of consciousness, and it's actually starting to eat at you and coloring your perception. And somehow the day is becoming more and more yellow, you know. And you don't know really why. You don't even notice it until somebody says something to you and you bark back at them. And you wonder, well, where did this come from? And then you just realize that you've been grumpy. And you wonder, how did that, how come, you know? Where did it start? You know? if, we, if we start, if we, if we do practice a lot of mindfulness and pay attention to those things, we get, have more chance, actually, in our you know, day, daily kind of experience to notice when those things start to come in, you know, just at little doses. And then we have a chance. You know, once we see it, we can actually have a chance to factor it in and maybe well, see whatever we have and whatever we want to develop. Be creative you know, in your own skillful means to counteract that tendency. You know, maybe it's, just, it's really good enough. Sometimes it's good enough to just see it and say, all right, fair enough. So no wonder I'm feeling a little bit grumpy. Also then you're more careful. You know, or maybe if you see it, you can actually all, yeah, you can laugh about it and, and it goes away. You just see your own limitations. You know? Or you notice maybe, oh, maybe it's good to counteract and, and, and bring some positive reflections you know, into your life to actually counteract the tendency. So then you don't have to kind of already react in a grumpy way with, with the next thing that's actually going to come at you. So you become a bit more skillful to counteract those um, habits that you might have. And the same applies, of course, and in a different way to the, to the attraction towards that which is pleasant. No? I mean, that's obvious. That's what the consumerist materialism uh, what advertisement is, is, is playing on, isn't it? That, that we naturally just inhabit, you know, just creating images or ideas in some way or another suggests to us that this is something we really need or is really going to make us feel good, you know, and whatever, because it's nice, it tastes good, or it, it's going to boost our self-image, you know. So, I mean, is it possible to follow Buddhist, the Buddhist, te- Buddhist teachings? I mean, we're all infected by this, you know, even if you're a Buddhist monk, you know, in a different ways, it, it works, you know. Of course, if you walk to the, through the food line, you know, every time I go through this, there's a cheesecake, you know, is smiling at me, you know, and giving me all kinds of subtle suggestions. It's a long history, you know, I've been unknown cheesecake, I just must have it, you know. So, and so it doesn't mean that I can't follow the Buddhist path, at least I hope, otherwise I'm doomed. But, I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, that's just the, the, the Buddhist path is to become conscious of it and to work with it, to practice with it, you know. Of course, it doesn't mean... If it's pleasant, you can't have it. No? But it's just to, just, to, just to encourage the fact that if you, if you have, if you create, and that's what mindfulness is, some more space around, some more awareness of it, just notice these forces operating in, operating in ourselves. We don't have to, of course, always uh, follow our inclinations. Just because it feels nice, it doesn't mean that it's going to be good for us. And even if it might be good for us, it still doesn't mean that we have to have it. And, I mean, we all know, I mean, you don't have to think far. And, and you can, of course, think through your own examples. You know, that's, that's a very important, you know, realization in our life. And that's what we need if you want, that's exactly what we need if you want to keep the five precepts. Huh? You know, the, the world of sen- sensual attraction, not only the advertisement, you don't need advertisement for that, isn't it? You know, in all kinds of ways. It's always kind of pulling ourselves, you know? 
And of course, practice of, of precepts and, and you know morality, morality and some restraint is just about sometimes the contact and think, oh yeah, okay, that feels like it'll be really nice, be really good, but maybe later I'm going to regret the consequences. Or maybe a little bit might be okay, but not as much as you know some force myself is suggesting. You know the the how do we call it? We call it criminal monster in German. I don't know what that one is. In, <laughs> in Sesame Street, this monster that likes biscuits. You know, it's just like more, 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 more. It's just or a mouse, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, we know for our own good, we need to restrain that a bit. You know? Or at least feed it with kind of organic, healthy cakes. So, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. I think, of course, um, lots of thing, a lot of things that basically, I mean, they don't, we don't pay attention because they don't tickle our interest. And it's not passes by, and that is also uh, it's also an important thing, of course, why. Um, the encouragement to, to develop just the general kind of the capacity of staying more constantly and in a more broad and dexterous way aware of our experience is also to take in more and more uh, of what seems, you know, in our first judgment, at least kind of neutral to us. Because in there could be a lot of useful information, you not know, very relevant, important information for us that we miss just because we don't pay attention. You know? As I say, neutral leads to Ignorance, because you can't be bothered, you know, it's not interesting. Pleasant or unpleasant, in one way or another, it certainly raises our interest, isn't it? And so, in practicing body awareness, you know, so something like, like the breath, is that what you use, or, or just, just general body posture, um, on the whole, I mean, tends to be more like a neutral kind of object. It's not intrinsically, at least at the beginning, you know, the breath is probably, to most of us, not overly interesting or overly exciting. It doesn't naturally attract our attention. Maybe you think otherwise, or maybe for you it is otherwise, but it's very different from watching you know, your favorite program on, te- on TV, isn't it? It's, it's not difficult at all to be focused on the television screen. Um, so there's, a, there's an intrinsic value in choosing, of course, and there's, there's a point you know, in choosing actually an object of meditation which is not exciting in itself, but it's neutral. If, if we manage actually to work with that and become interested in that, it means actually because we are actually really working on strengthening actually uh, our, our, the strengths, the capacities of our awareness, of our mindfulness, and that's, that's the whole point. It's not just by itself just to be um, focused, fixed, and glued to some meditation object. You know, as a, it's not in itself the point. Of meditation, I mean, that can be quite nice in itself, but it's not it's certainly not an end in itself or a mean for um, of meditation in, in the Buddhist uh, context. Mm-hmm. So that's also why it's really important to, be, to clarify for ourselves what is our intention mm-hmm. on the path, what is our intention in meditation. Mm-hmm. If you just want to be fixing your attention on, onto an object, I mean, this could be, of course, it can just be a way of escaping, of course, the the complexity of life or you know, the, the, and the, the troubles that arise with it in, in a relationship, you know. It's a way of just, you know, you don't have to be with anybody or relate to anybody. You just, that's definitely peaceful, isn't it? Just look at some candle or light inside. It's peaceful. And that has its own merits and values, but it's also limited you know, if it's only that. If you don't use it in any way to develop some kind of 
wisdom or some uh, quality uh, of for some strengths of attention that we can carry with us into you know, the more complex life of when we are active out there and when we have to interact or something. So if you see meditation like that, it's an exercise to really uh, develop those different capacities that allow us to be more aware in our daily life and therefore more circumspect, more capable to investigate our uh, experience and therefore to develop more wisdom and therefore come up with more adequate responses to our life and therefore reduce actually the suffering in our life. Well, then, I, then, I, then I have a much more broad approach about what it's actually about. You know, if I come on a meditation retreat or sit down you know, at home or here uh, for half an hour or for two hours or for the whole day or whatever on my meditation cushion. Because then really everything that appears in there, what happens in there, uh, becomes uh, food for thought, isn't it? And, and, and something that, that we can learn from. As, soon, as long as we are then basically interested and willing to learn from that experience, then there isn't really any, anything like a bad meditation no, or failed meditation. Well, to me, in that sense, a bad meditation doesn't so much have to do with anything how it feels or how it felt, what the, what the felt experience of it was, which is how we often instinctively kind of judge our meditation and say, oh, this was a good meditation, wonderful meditation. meant, oh, you've had a lot of blissful feelings, perhaps, you know, the, all the lights went on, or you felt really stable and calm and, and content. Or this was a bad meditation because, you know, I just didn't seem to be able to be doing it and was just all kind of restless or, or sleepy. But, you know, if you have actually been able to learn something from it then, it, then that could have been a very valuable experience, isn't it? And then it would be a good meditation. Mm-hmm. If you just sit there every time and just being still and content, but you don't learn anything, just do the same stupid mistakes in life again and again and don't stop suffering, except when you sit on a meditation cushion, what, what good does it do you? I mean, is there really a good meditation? Depends, depends by what kind of standards we are judging that experience, isn't it? Mm. So, therefore, to me also, I, it's, I find it important you know, to, to factor that in to experience. What, what does it actually mean for you to improve, to learn, um, to advance on your path of meditation? You know? How do you actually measure that you're actually learning new skills, that you have actually learned something from it? It's very good. Not to have a meditation technique or maybe various that you can actually use, that you can develop, develop some skill with. But that, you know, how skillful you are at, you know, at, at a technique, you know, and how long you can stay with the breath or whatever you're doing, you know, that is only one. And if that's the only, then it's a very limited way in which kind of to measure kind of your, your, your progress in meditation. You, know? you can actually progress and learn a lot without apparently advancing at all on your you know, chosen technique. That are just often the effects that we don't actually, you know, um, notice because we don't look out for. Because if if we're focused on measuring or wanting or hoping for some kind of experience in meditation by which we can then measure our progress, oh, I had a new experience, I had a deep experience, I must be making some progress. That might well be the case, but you might be actually making a lot of progress, very useful progress, without having any, you know, apparently interesting or exciting experience in meditation at all. For example, you might be developing patience. No? And patience is, is, you know, and is a quality of enormous value in our life. No? And Ajahn Chah, you know, the, the kind of 
behind the original teacher of our particular tradition. He, he emphasized again and again, as a patient endurance, that's, that's the most important quality in spiritual life. And being able to actually take frustrating experiences. And we're obvious, because obviously we don't learn that patience from having a wonderful, nice, kind of cruising, blissful experience in meditation. No? You're not going to learn patience from that. And of course, sometimes we don't notice that. I mean, you've been patience you learn actually from, you know, and, and steadiness, commitment, those kinds of things you learn from actually really just keeping going all the time. You know, it doesn't matter whether your meditation, sometimes it feels good, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it seems to work, sometimes it doesn't. You know, sometimes you seem to have good experiences, sometimes for long periods, nothing seems to happen. Or only unskillful thoughts come up. Now, but by learning to be, you know, to, be, to bear with it, you know, patiently and create space around it, no. By being willing to do that, we do actually learn, we, we really expand you know, the, the quality, the capacity of our heart to bear this unpleasant experience. No. To just be able to recognize, oh, this is unpleasant. So what? No. That's just what it is. It's just unpleasant. No. I don't. It's, it's, I'm under no obligation to create a drama out of it. No. I don't have to add suffering I can do if I want to, and I have to take responsibility for that because that's what I'm doing. Well, that's also something that we need to see and become honest about and learn about. You know, how we add our own, we are responsible for adding the suffering to unpleasant experience. But I can also choose. There is a possibility. That's what the Buddha was talking about, you know, as what, what freedom of the mind is. Ultimately, it's entirely up to us. No, he, he even to the to the extreme. You no, know, there's this famous the simile of the saw. If you know some highway robbers, you know, catch you, you know, on the on the on somewhere on the road and pin you down, and saw off your limbs one by one with a sharp toothed saw, you know, and you harbor you know a single sort of ill will towards those people, then you haven't kind of you're not a true follower of my teaching. You haven't truly understood my teaching. Well, that's. Sounds a little harsh. <laughs> it's a, certainly a very high standard. You know, who of us could? You know, none of us probably would be able to live up to that. So I, we are not true followers of his teaching. We haven't truly understood it. No, but I think I always like to reflect on the fact that the Buddha certainly. I mean, he didn't say that to just to put us down or to put the bhikkhus bhikkhunis there down. Uh, what he what he intended to is actually to actually point out the the, the true depths and scope. He was actually talking about then when he was talking about the possibility of complete freedom from suffering. No, he, he was really talking about in his realization no, of freedom. He wasn't talking about it's possible to go to some kind of state of absorption where you can black it all out and all the vicissitudes of life and you just be peaceful and that's it. And you don't suffer in there. I mean, that might be possible. But he was talking about complete freedom from suffering within the turmoil of our life. You know, up to the utmost extreme no? So there's a possibility that if you really realized you know, the freedom of the heart inside, perfect equanimity means that it's a freedom and peace of the heart that's completely independent of the outward circumstances of our life. No? That doesn't mean that somebody is sawing your, your arm or your leg off, it doesn't hurt. Not at all. <laughs> In some ways, actually, the heart actually opening up and becoming free means actually you feel in more pain because you become more sensitive to it all. You're not so numb to it and through defenses anymore. Uh, but if it is, of course, 
you know, if it is freedom of the heart, then that is accompanied by, by the, the, the even more increased, you know, if it's complete freedom of the heart, the, the, the maximum, the total capacity of just taking you know, all the pain of life as it is and just leave it at that. And just, like that, it just wow, this is painful. <laughs> this is really painful. And yeah, I mean, what those guys are doing, what they are doing is, is, is incredibly unskillful. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. You know? But if the heart is truly f- free, it's not going to turn that into, a, into a anger. There's no reason for doing that. You know? or, in, or in any kind of unskillful response. So therefore, it, it's, that's, it, doesn't, it doesn't add you know, the, the self-created suffering on, on, on top of it. So that is, that is, of course, I mean, to most of us, that is a, perhaps, you know, to me, that's, that's, I mean, it's inspiring. To me, it's inspiring. I mean, that's what I'm in, in for, you know, in, in this. But it's, it might be very, still very far away, a very remote kind of goal. But that's what we can, you know, we can be inspired by, we can aspire towards, we can incline towards, and we can work, you know, at our own capacities, you know, you know just a little bit towards that. It would be foolish, of course, to to just throw ourselves out of idealism into it and just basically try to bypass where we are actually are, say, with our, um, the way we are, you know, say, still unable to resist you know, the pull of you know, material um, gains or pleasure you know, or the, the aversion towards, towards uh, unpleasant experiences. But it starts by being honest about it. Well, therefore, taking responsibility for it. You know? As long as we are in thrall of that and, and, and respond to that, you know, just by blindly believing you know, the push in our, from, in, in our heart towards pleasure and away from, from pain, well, then we're gonna. If, if we really, if, if we, if we attach to that, if we really believe in that, then, then we're gonna end up with suffering. We're gonna have to take responsibility for that. But of course, then once we see that, and then we, we can also see, you know, that in, in awareness and just being aware of it, you know, there's a potential. You know? I mean, so that's, there's a potential. There's a possibility of, of freedom, you know? because with awareness, we can just feel the pleasure. You know? We can just feel the pain, and of awareness, by itself doesn't have any agenda, isn't it? it doesn't have any judgment about it. it just feels, well, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant. So if we can stay, if we can keep our heart open, our mind open, we can stay connected to awareness, and awareness remains a refuge, and we can just stay with that. We can just notice, oh, pleasure. This feels really nice. Oh, this really hurts. Just stay with, it, stay with it, and then see what's next. Then we might see there might be a condition or whatever, you know, response from our, our mind, which might be anything. However, you are conditioned, you know. If you're a masochist, you know, and it hurts, and saying, oh, this is really nice. <laughs> it hurts. How great, you know. For most of us, in most cases, it probably just feel, oh, you really don't like it. So, if, you, if the heart remains open, you remain aware, you just notice, okay, there's dislike. It still doesn't mean that you have to react in any kind of way. You know? There might be pleasure, you know, really nice taste or something, you know, whatever you like, let's let it be cheesecake or something. Really nice pleasure, and then you notice, I really like this. You know? And then the next thing you might come up, so I think I'm going to take another piece. You know? 
Well, not with awareness. You can just be aware of it. We don't have to add anything onto it. We don't have to judge it. We don't have to, and we don't have to believe it. So it neither means they have to say, oh, we are bad or we are not good enough Buddhists because we have this kind of thought. I mean, it's just, just fine. It's just, you know, it's just the same way we can just recognize this is just natural. No, it's just natural conditioning. Part of it, biological conditioning, part of it are, you know, personal conditioning, you know, the particular kind of likes and dislikes that we develop. And then, if I can stay just with it, patiently, with awareness, then I can make a choice. Rather than just reacting in one way or another, having another piece, or the opposite, hating myself for even having had the thought of wanting another piece, and then just come up with, oh, punishment, punishment, I need punishment, or, you know, whatever, however you are conditioned. You just notice, oh, it's like this. And then you can just stay with it, and then you just, maybe you just think, okay, I might like to take another piece, but that might not be good for them. I might regret it later. I might say, okay, but there are only three pieces, and there are another three people here in the room, and they didn't have the pieces. So maybe those other three pieces are meant for them. So that's just something that we can, that we can work with. It doesn't mean you have to think about it all the time. Of course, you, you can think about it, how this applies in your life. No? Pleasure, pain, attraction, aversion. Um, neutral and ignorance, but also just every now and then maybe just to, to drop that in, you know, in your experience. You know, it can give us a very uh, little reflection. Sometimes we are not even aware. We're just becoming aware of what's happening there. Or even something if, if you start to drift towards a mood or something, you know, to, sometimes it can help to actually clarify what's actually happening and where it's actually coming from. You know, so, ah, you know, is it just pleasant, unpleasant, and you know, so, oh yeah, it's unpleasant. All oh, right, okay. Oh, that's what it is, you know. Simplify things, you know, rather than kind of oh, grumble, mumble, and I think, oh, I don't know, why did I come on this retreat, and oh, maybe it wasn't a good idea at all, and if I would have done something else, and I don't know, it's, you know different kind of food, and I don't like it, and it's kind of not healthy, you know, you know, and I don't know, why is he always says this, and then why is she kind of, what's she looking at me for anyway? And just, ah, oh, yes, unpleasant. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, then I can take responsibility for it, isn't it? I can practice with it. And just suddenly, you know, clouds disappear, and I start to see clearly again. And the whole kind of stories, and then we kind of got lost and just collapses. So that's one way how reflection can work in our practice. You know, very simple. And insight can arise from that. Changes, um, clarifies our perception. So that's perhaps enough.